Okay, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you all, Gregory House South and also North, who will be joining us um, remotely through audio. And I want to introduce you all to our one of our most beloved diocesan theologians, uh, Dr. John Clark, who is teaching with us this morning. And uh, on behalf of Bishop Stuart and Amy, who could not be here, welcome everyone. Let me just start with a brief word of prayer and then we'll let Dr. Clark jump right in. The Lord be with you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, the sunshine and uh, just the change of seasons and how your glory is magnified in those changes in beauty. And Father, we commit this day to you. I pray your blessing upon Dr. Clark as he teaches so that you would just be in his words, open our hearts and minds and ears to hear all that you have to speak through him. We commit this time and ourselves to the glory of your service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Greetings, Gregory House, north and south. So glad we get to be here together. And um, this is the first of our 22 theology sessions or theology parties that we'll have this year in Ascension Year at Gregory House. And I don't say theology party in a cute way. I really mean that. Well, what we want to do together is um, revel in, right? Delight in, rejoice in the triune God of the gospel who's made us his own and is transforming us to that blessed image of the Lord Jesus. So, um, off we'll go today. In this first session, what I want to do is I want to lay a context for the whole year and uh, the whole cycle that we'll be in in Gregory House, talking about what is theology, um, what is theology's particular service to the church's life and mission, and what is theology's particular service to our spiritual formation, our formation in the Lord Jesus. Um, theology is not a substitute for that. It's not the whole of that, but it's uh, essential to that. It's an essential element of what it means to be formed in Christ Jesus. So let's start there. And let me, let me um, bathe this in prayer and off we'll go. Let me say one thing before we start. Um, I like to teach with lots of interaction, lots of dialogue, lots of hospitality. So please never be shy. Um, theology actually is meant to be done dialogically because it's a, it's a confessional undertaking. And so uh, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a transfer of information. It's actually us as a community um, learning how to speak, right? So let's pray and off we go. The Lord be with you. Holy Father, we come uh, as you have bid us to come in the Lord Jesus. You have extended hospitality to us and invited us um, to be brought in as living members of Christ's body uh, into your very bosom. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask uh, that you would take us up, faithful high priest, to that place where you have ever been as the eternal word in the bosom of the Father and that you would share what is most precious to you, your knowing of the Father. As you tell us, no one knows the Father but the Son and whoever he deigns to bring into that blessed sphere of knowing. And so. We ask that you do that today, uh, and then you would uh, continue in the power and presence of the Spirit, your mission to conform us to yourself, Lord Jesus. Um, we ask that you be near to us. We ask that you give us facility of thought and heart and mind, affection, imagination, all that we need um, to commune with you, to mission with you, and to uh, press into our calling, as Lewis would say, further up and further in into our calling. Um, 
right here and right now. So do this and knit our hearts together, we pray uh, in this holy call. In Christ's name, amen. So here we are, the service of theology to the church's life and mission. Uh, what I want to do is explore a whole bunch of ways in which theology is, is essential to that and essential to our calling. We're asking and seeking to answer the questions. They won't all be answered today, that's for sure, but we're going to put them out there and we're going to press in and live into them over the next year together, a couple of years together. We're asking, what are we doing relative to theological formation and why are we doing it? Um, I like to start conversations of this sort uh, with a quote uh, from Richard Dawkins. Lots of you know, you might say, that seems odd. Um, lots of you know who Richard Dawkins is. He's, a, um, he's an emeritus professor at Oxford University in the natural sciences. And part of his, endowed, his endowment as a professor is to um, attack Christianity. Um, he's wrote uh, many books. Um, the one you probably know best or the one that might uh, come to mind most readily is uh, The God Delusion. This quote isn't from that. But listen to what he says about theology. Dawkins says, what has theology ever said that is of the smallest use to anybody? That's an auspicious start, eh? When has theology ever said anything that is demonstrably true and not obvious? I've listened to theologians, I've read them, I've debated against them, I've never heard any of them ever say anything of the smallest use, anything that was not either platitudinously obvious or downright false. If the achievements of scientists were wiped out tomorrow, that's Dawkins, right? The achievements of scientists were wiped out tomorrow, there would be no doctors, but which doctors? No transport faster than horses, no computers, no printed books, no agriculture beyond subsistent peasant farming, Conversely, if all the achievements of theologians were wiped out tomorrow, would anyone notice the smallest difference? Who cares, right? Even the bad achievements of scientists, the bombs, the sonar-guided whaling vessels, work. The achievements of theologians don't do anything. They don't affect anything. They don't mean anything. What makes anyone think that theology is a subject at all? End quote. Now, before we, before we get on, Dawkins is a renowned atheist. He's, he's vitriolic against our Lord Jesus and his people and his church and his mission. But don't miss that although it would strike a little bit different key, many Christians have an incredibly low estimation and view of theology, right? That element of our formation, apart from which formation is handicapped at best, right? Not the whole of formation, but apart from which it's handicapped at best. So it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start this conversation. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Now Dawkins, you can criticize him here for lots of reasons, right? His pragmatism, even bombs and sonar-guided whaling vessels work, and that's the criteria of something successful, right? Um, you could critique him for um, peddling for us um, scientism um, under the guise of science, right? Denatured science is something quite different. You could say he's uncharitable, and he is. You could say he's hysterical, right? And no one's ever taught him that 
you know, um, hyperbole doesn't strengthen arguments, <laughs> weakens them. You could say all those things, but the reason that I um, start with this quote is, is um, this very reason. Everything he says in this diatribe against theology is theological. Every single thing he must and he has to, because he's God's creature in God's world, he has to use theology and be a theologian of a sort in order to spend his time and energy railing against theology. My point's this. Theology's inevitable, right? It's an inevitable, inescapable human exercise. So even atheist fundamentalists, right? Tub-thumping evangelistic fundamentalists like Richard Dawkins, theological, theological of a sort. Not the kind of theology we're gonna do, obviously, but theological of a sort, right? Now, why is that? Why is it the case that everyone is a theologian of a sort? Everyone's a theologian. We can say a few things. We could say this, because we bear God's image, right? We bear God's image. We are made by God for fellowship with God, and we're God's creatures in God's world, and no matter how we might even long to be exempt from that, we never can be. John Calvin, great reformational theologian, says, we bear what he calls the sensus divinitatis, right, in, in Latin. We have a sense of divinity, that pre-critical, intuitional knowledge of God, not knowledge of the triune God of the gospel, that has to be revealed to us, but we have this in our hearts, right? So even as we try to suppress it, all, all that ends up happening is we're haunted there, right? Richard Dawkins is actually haunted by God. Like Shakespeare says, you doth protest too much, Dawkins, right? You're trying really, really hard um, to suppress something you, you know, right? Ecclesiastes says, Ecclesiastes 3.11, that eternity is in our hearts, right? Eternity is in our hearts. So where we are people that ponder life's big questions, that's just, that's just one of the things it means to be a human in God's world. We're pondering life's questions all the time. And behind all those questions, what lurks back there, for us, we'd hope it's right out in the forefront, right? But what always at least lurks for people is the question of God, no matter how basic you want to you make those questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Right? Um, why is part of that grand something me? Why do I exist? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be an authentic one or an inauthentic one? Um, what, is the, what ought I give to my, my life to, right? What's valuable, significant, purposeful? Why do I see such brokenness in the world? Why do I see such glory bursting through even in the places of brokenness in the world? Why do I have to die and what in the world does that mean? All of, all of these questions people ponder, right? Even if they're trying to flee from them and are haunted by them. And all the while, right there, right? The question of God, it's always there. The census divinitatis that Calvin talks about, this eternity that's in our hearts. Dawkins manifests it wonderfully. Another reason is this. We are, again, to, to use Latin, we're, we're homo adorans, right? We're homo adorans. That means we're worshiping beings. The most, one of the most basic things you can say, the most basic thing you can say about a human being is we are the image of God. Right there, what that means, we were made for worship. 
right? Made by God for God. We were made for worship. We're hardwired for it and we will do it. Worship will spring out of us, whether we're worshiping the triune God of the gospel or uh, a cheeseburger down at a good restaurant in downtown Chicago, right? Worship will just pour out of us. It's never a question of will or won't we worship. It's what will you worship? Who will you worship? To what end? Are you fulfilling the very reason for your existence? Are you being an authentic human being in that sense or not? Right? I want you to be thinking about that the whole time we're doing theology. One of the things that's always lying underneath there is you are never more. I am never more. We are never more authentically human than in the act of worship. All of God's intentions for creation and redemption are being fulfilled in worship. It needs no justification. It's an end in itself. We're hardwired for it, and we will do it. We will do it. Right here, we should at least make the comment, be thinking about this as we go through, the word orthodoxy. It's one of those words for moderns like dogma or tradition that usually doesn't have the cheeriest of connotations. It's a wonderful word, orthodoxy. Aspire to it, revel in it. Ortho, doxy, right. We could say ortho, that's what right means. Doxa, right? It carries with it the connotation of doctrine, but even more to the point, worship, glory, right? If we want to rightly worship God, glorify God, we want to watch carefully our doctrine, like Paul tells Timothy, because this is the way we worship God according to who he is, according to truth, right? So that our Lord is glorified and we are actually, in the noblest sense of the term, made happy in him. That's why, that's why we're doing what we're doing. So the question is never, will I or won't I be a theologian? Will I or won't I? And there's many levels in which you can be that. But will I or won't I be a theologian? The question is, will I be a good one? Will I be a good one? I want to ponder that a little bit today, what it means to be a good theologian. Um, and I also just want to let it hang out there because we're not going to answer it in, in a minute or an hour. We're going to answer that over the course of our lives, but, but more to the point here uh, over the course of Gregory House. What, is it, what does it mean for us as ministers of the gospel, as the people of God, to be good theologians for the life and mission of the church and for the fullness of our hearts? To that end, I'll give you a couple quotes to be thinking of, a couple of wonderful quotes to be thinking of. You see them right here in your notes about a third of the way down the page. First one's from G.I. Packer. In that Christian classic, Knowing God, many of you have probably read it. He says this, what were we made for? To know God. It's the reason we exist. What aim should we therefore have in life? to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus offers and gives to us, right? He's thinking here, John 17, three. And this is life, that you know the Father, right? that you know him, that not, not just like cranial apprehension, but that rich, you know, in Hebrew, yada, and Greek, gnosko, that rich relational knowing, right? That you know the Father and the one whom he has sent, or more to the point, in the one, and through the one, and with the one that he has sent. What is eternal life? It's that. 
That's what Jesus comes to bring us right now and bring us deeper into in the now. What's the best thing in life, the very substance and highlight of our lives? Pressing into the knowledge of God. And this, because I, don't th I think we don't often think this. Christians don't often grapple with this, delight in it. What in human beings gives God most pleasure? What is it that when God beholds us, God delights in? Are growing up in the fullness of the knowledge of God. That's what we're doing. True theology, that quote right below it, James Torrance. True theology is theology done in the presence of God. We're not reminiscing about God. We're not pondering God in God's absence. We're doing theology before the face of God, right? In the presence of God, under that leadership. We'll look at that in a minute. True theology is done in the presence of God, in the midst of the worshiping community. Theology is for worship, serves that point. It itself is an act of worship, and we do it with the people of God. That's the, that's, that's the native and natural context for theology. We do it in the life of the church for the mission of the church, for the blessing of the people of God, and for the life of the world, right? True theology is done in the presence of God in the midst of the worshiping community, True theology is theology that sings. True theology is theology that sings. Think about that as we go. Um, the posture of theology isn't navel-gazing, chin-scratching, anything like that. The posture of theology is the posture of worship, right? Theology is that song that rises up as God gives himself to us to be known, and we respond, right? What's the response? It's delight, it's joyful, right? It's a joyful no noise. Theology is that which sings. So that's what we want to be doing. Now, let me stop there. I'm going to do this, you know, lots as we go along today and going forward, because I really want to be, like I said, dialogical. What are your thoughts so far, comments so far? Uh, Sophia, I'm going to give you a mic because Gregory House North is with us. This is more of a question, but I was wondering how, um, based on some of the description you were giving before of how um, inevitable theology is, I was curious about how you would distinguish philosophy and, and theology. I'm sorry? How you would distinguish philosophy with theology? Philosophy from theology? Um, in a nutshell, let me say it like this, in a nutshell, theology is always concerned first and foremost with revelation. You'll see that right away, but theology is, is about God's self-disclosure. Philosophy um, is more about that, that kind of thinking that, that arises up from, from our creaturely observations um, of the world, let's say that. So the issue is from which they arise, right? Theology always goes from God to us and from God to the world. Philosophy is something else. Now, philosophy can help theology, right? Sharpen language and concepts, ideology, all of those things. But what theology can never, or what philosophy rather, can never do is provide the, the substance, the content of, of theology, or by the way, the foundation of theology. So our goal is never going to be, let's lay a nice, thick philosophical construct 
upon which to lay the church's theology, right? Someone like Tertullian, if you've heard, you know, ancient church father, he says, you know, what, what is Jerusalem to do with Athens, right? Now, in that broader context, what he's getting at is, you know, do we want kind of like a modeled syncretistic theology um, that, we're, that we're trying to lay on another foundation, the gospel? Christians, modern Christians are a little bit um, less clear about that than perhaps maybe modern philosophers. So Matt went to the University of Chicago. I'll bet you if I went to the University of Chicago and I went to the philosophy department and I said, why isn't the philosophy department just a branch of annex to the divinity department at the University of Chicago? And then say, what does Athens to do with Jerusalem? They'd be real clear about it. Would they not, Matt? They'd be real clear about that. Christians aren't as clear as the world about that. Um, it's, it's not that we um, uh, disdain or even d diminish at all that, that you know, wonderful creaturely aspect of, of um, human wisdom. But it too, it has to be baptized in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Right? It, has to, it has to do that. It has to come to the font and be formed in him so it can be of service to theology. The Apostle Paul, it's 1 Corinthians 3.11, right? There is no foundation which can be laid except that which has been laid, who is Christ Jesus, right? So that's, that's the big issue. We want to engage in creaturely, creaturely disciplines, you know, along with philosophy, would say science, would say sociology, psychology. We really want to be able to speak to the world, engage the world that way, not to mention literature and film and all of these things. But they're never, they're, they're never, um, they're never the foundation and they never have the final word. Does that make sense? Anybody else? So if you just hold it then, okay, and pass it on as we go. Let's press in. The church's rightful office or holy burden. This is a holy burden. Hear this. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Take my burden upon you. There is a, there is a, there is a burden there, right? But it's lovely. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Learn from me, right? Walk with me. We'll get at that. Who is the chief theologian in the church? The Lord Jesus Christ. What then is theology? Discipleship. A really important aspect of discipleship. And what end does it serve? The advancement of discipleship for the life of the church and the life of the world. Theology... That word, just talk about etymology for a minute. Theology, the term theology is a compound word, two Greek nouns, right? Theos, you guys know that, theos, God. Logos, theos, logos, theology, theos, logos. What is logos? That has a, that has a bit broader semantic domain to it, right? It means word, speech, it's translated into our English versions of scripture as word, usually. It means speech. If you, if you, if you read, you know, like Reformation or medieval Latin texts or something like that, you'll, you'll often see it translated sermo, which I love, sermo. If Jesus Christ is the word of God, what is he? He's the sermon of God. What does the Father do with Jesus Christ? He sings him forth into the world. He does that. 
Lagos also means, really importantly, reason or logic. You, you, you hear the connection really clearly there, don't you? <clears throat> Lagos, logic. Theology is the logic of heaven. It's the logic of the kingdom. Does God have a logic? Yes. His name is Jesus Christ. God has a logic. In other words, when we're doing, when we're doing theology, and, and Sophia, this gets right back to what you were saying, is the logic of God philosophy? Nope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that one who exegetes God, who reveals God, who makes sense of God, makes God knowable to us. Now, that's the noun, right? Theology. What kind of theology are we doing? I said all Christians are theologians. Well, we're not all theologians like Dawkins. He's a specific kind of critter, uh, and his theology is something quite different than what we're doing. So what distinguishes? What's the, what's the mark of our kind of theology? Well, it's Christian theology, right? Christian. And I like to, um, I like to say in, in context like this, it's Christian theology. Not to be pedantic, that's not the point. It's Christian theology because we can ever so subtly as Christians do theology and push Jesus Christ farther and farther and farther from the margin. So in, in truth, it has nothing to do with our theology, very little. We're doing Christian theology. That's what the church is called to do, Christian theology. It's that kind of theology or qualified by this adjective that relates specifically Unremittingly, I would add there, um, it is preoccupied with, um, infatuated with, in the best, in best possible sense of those words, with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's theology that does that. It learns how to sing him, not in a myopic way, but in a way that to know Jesus Christ is to be brought into <laughs> the one about whom scripture says, all things hold together in him. He's preeminent in all things. How do, we, how, do we, how do we know who God is and what the world means and what it means to be human? Jesus Christ is the inlet to that. He's the inlet to that. So Christian theology, Christian theology is that. Authentically Christian theology then relates to Jesus Christ, what we're doing here, in a way that is expressly ordered by the theologic theology, the theologic of the gospel. We're not, we're not laying any other foundation but that which has been laid, right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Shortly after, he says this, I came doing this, being intent upon knowing nothing but Christ Jesus and him crucified, right? Because he's the theologic of all things, in him all things hold together. So not in a myopic way, but in an expansive way so that we can engage the whole of reality this way. Jesus Christ is the theologic of the gospel, and so to do Christian theology is to operate in such a way that we refuse to undermine and obscure his identity as that one who is the cornerstone of prophets and apostles, right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna lift him from that context of Holy Scripture so that what we're really talking about is cardigan Jesus, CEO Jesus, activist Jesus, um, personal wellness, Jesus. Like none of these things. Those, those are ways in which the world tries to reimagine Jesus in its own image. And by the way, the world's quite comfortable with that, Jesus. We're talking about the one who is the image of God, who manifests what it means 
that God is God. He's the self-exposition of God and reveals us to us, that Jesus. And never laying any foundation alien to him, no logic, right? Alien to the Logos. We're not, we're not trying to lay a found, any foundation alien to him so that he becomes actually unrecognizable to us. Does that make sense? And boy, we can do that really easily, can't we? We can do it really easily for lots of us moderns because, we, because we're just buffeted constantly by social media and things like that. What we're, what we're often doing is saying, Jesus Christ is the Lord, so, pa- so far as he passed muster by the criteria laid, laid out for him in our culture, and to the extent he does, we confer lordship on him. Aren't we magnum- magnanimous, right? Conferred lordship's an oxymoron. He's the Lord of all things. He loves this world, and he speaks a lordly world to it, and he's always the Lord of that word. We're never laying a foundation alien to him. Christian theology, then, this holy burden we have, the church's call, our call, what we're doing right now, call to offer competent, competent, compelling, coherent confession of faith, singing it forth, right? And the God who's truly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, singing it forth for the life of the church, singing it forth for the, for the, um, for the engagement of ministry in the life of the church and all facets of ministry to be salt and light in the world. We'll get at all of those things as we go. That's what we're doing. To that end, here's, here's another wonderful quote. I'm gonna introduce a couple of readings by Michael Reed from just a little while, but this is a quote from Rejoicing in Jesus Christ. He says, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel, the crown of Christianity is not an idea. Right, when we say, you know, the Logos idea, he's not an inanimate, impersonal idea. The reason of God is personal, person, right? That one who comes forth from the bosom of the Father, the one who's ultimately incarnate, right? And is the humanly mediated reason of God. We're not talking about an idea. We're not trying to build systems, by the way. We're not trying to build systems that somehow Jesus Christ um, um, we can fit him on top or that he would you know, appreciate or affirm or anything like that. We're not system builders. And Christianity is not about a thing. We don't proclaim a thing, right? Um, we're talking about this one, right, who is the embodied personal, by the way, human and therefore humanizing to us, reality of God. That's the church's burden, or we're getting at it. Anything you guys want to say? All right, then, let's push on. Um, All that to say, let's keep going deeper. What are some points here we need to ponder when we're thinking about what is theology? Why are we doing it? Um, what does it matter, right? To answer Dawkins' question, what does it matter? Let's ponder some of these points I have. I'm right on the bottom of page two. The Apostle John, he joins these words, theos, logos, together when he refers to Jesus Christ as word of God. That's verse one, chapter one, John's gospel. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was himself God, right? 
Jesus Christ is the word of God, the God word that John's talking about. Now, do you guys have scripture with you? Look with me. Um, look, at, look at John 1 and then put your finger in, in Revelation 19.3. I want to show you something really cool. And it speaks to what we're doing here. Okay, you saw John 1. This is the way John's corpus, right? John's writings, the Apostle John's start. In the beginning, what beginning? What beginning? The beginning of John's gospel? In the beginning of the events that begun at Bethlehem or with the Annunciation, the angel's Annunciation to Mary? No, no, no. Way, way back, way back, way back. We're, talking, we're getting back to eternity. We'll see that in our next session, you know, in a couple hours. John says, before time was. He's using, he's using timed language because we're timed creatures. It's all we can do, right? Don't think in the beginning as something timed before time began. What was in the beginning? The Word. The Word that was with God and the Word was God. Now I'll show you this. Let me just, let me just go for a little bit more. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Colossians and Hebrews will add, by him, for him. Why, do, why, does, it, why does anything exist except the triune God of the gospel? So that Jesus, so that all things might be summed up in Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. When did he begin to be the self-expression of God. As soon as, as soon as God's inner triune life moved out in joy to sing creation into being, the Word was the one in the forefront. That's what John's telling us. He's helping us interpret Genesis, by the way. So you've got that. Now look over it. I think I said Revelation 19.3. I meant 19.13. This too is, a, is, a, is John's writing. So we've got John's gospel and Revelation, right? The beginning and the end of John's corpus in the New Testament. At the summing up of this age and the, inaugura- the, the, the ushering in to that, that, that world without end, right? And I saw, I'm starting in verse 11 of Revelation 19, and then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is Word of God. Do you see what John's doing? In the beginning was the word, in the summing up of this age and the ushering of all things into that next age, world without end, who's in the forefront? The word, 
right? What John's doing is he's got, a, he's got an inclusio there, right? That's what you'd call that. New Testament exegetes would call that an inclusio. In the beginning was the word. In the end, world without end was the word. What is the word preeminent in? Everything. Everything. What does theology do? Sings to that word. John's telling us that Jesus Christ is himself when he calls him the God word, word of God. John's telling us that Jesus Christ is our theology. Not that he makes theology possible. Not that theology has, you know, intermittent reference to him or even, you know, consistent reference to him. He's saying, no, no, no. The word of God is the substance of our theology. The reason you're preoccupied with him is because he is the substance and the sum of your theology. Even more than that, he's not only the substance and sum of your theology, he is the ultimate theologian. He is the one who is the word of God, who brings the word of God, so that we have a word of God by God, from God, about God. Who is the church's head? The word of God. Who is the church's chief theologian? The word of God. What are we doing? And what's an, an important element when he says, come and follow me. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is he doing? Among other things, teaching us to be theologians. We're learning from him who is the theology of God as God by God, for God, about God. Right up, right up front, boy, if, if, we, if we don't get that, our first step is going to be a misstep. We're going to be off message right away. That's what we're doing. That's what we're always doing theologically. Listen to Hilliard Poitier. I'm over on the top of page three. A couple, couple quotes to get you thinking about this. He says, since we are to discourse of the things of God, which is what we're doing, let us assume that God has full knowledge of himself and bow with humble reverence to his words. For he whom we can only know through his own utterances is the fitting witness concerning himself. Billy's fourth century Western Latin theologian, important in you know, Trinitarian theology, uh, Council of Nicaea. What's he saying? He's saying, God, God knows all, right? God is omniscient, we'd say. What's the most stunning element of God's omniscience? Um, that God fully knows himself. There's no blind spots in God. The ground of God's self-knowing is the ground of God's opening his life up to us and God's self-disclosure. God's self-disclosure grounds not only our knowing of God, but our knowing of ourselves. As God reveals himself to us, God is even revealing us to us. Who are we made by? Who are we made through? Who are we made for? To what end? Who holds all things together? Who's preeminent in all things? To whose image are we to be conformed? This is what we're talking about, right? Right off the bat, Hillary's saying, this is the way to do Christian theology. I add this quote for, from John Calvin. Jesus Christ, it's from his commentary on Hebrews, talking about Jesus Christ, um, the high priest in the sanctuary of God. Christ is the great choir master, the leader of the liturgy. He's the great choir master who turns our hearts to sing God's praise. Theology sings. Who leads us in that song? 
Jesus Christ, song of God, that's what he's doing. We're, we're tuning our voices there. Jesus Christ is the, our the, our, the sum and substance, how did I say it, that. Um, he is the church's ultimate theologian. You know who else he is? He's the ultimate worshiper, isn't he? The Father, ever loving the Son, the Son, ever reciprocating, adoring the Father. Jesus Christ come in the flesh to teach us and bring us into the worship of God, right? Theology as an exercise in worship under the auspices of the Lord and, and, and ultimate theologian. What is he doing? He's teaching us to sing there. He's not only the revelation of God, right? Which comes from God to us, but he's actually gathering us up and sanctifying our, our hearts and minds as he brings us to God. That's what's going on in the, the theological task, among other things, but things we want to be thinking of, yes? Theology, then, is our participation in Jesus Christ's knowing of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit. Did you hear that? Participation. Now, often when we talk about theology, we talk about application, right? How does this apply? That's a great thing to talk about, but I want, I want to make sure right off the bat that we're getting this. Often what's at least suggested when you've used the language of application is that we're reminiscing about God, the God who isn't here. We're pondering God in his absence, and we're learning how to take propositional truth claims uh, and somehow make them relevant to our lives, applicable. Now, application is a wonderful thing, right? Application is an is a important part of theology. But even more basic, more central, what we're doing is participatory. We are being brought in to the sphere of Jesus Christ knowing of the Father and the communion of the Spirit. No one knows the Father but the Son. And you who I deign to to open up the bosom of my Father, that which is most precious to me, always has been, always will be, I want to share it with you. So that as you, as you grow in theological knowledge and wisdom, what's actually happening is, is that you're just mastering uh, a body of information. Right? Um, theology actually isn't ultimately about the order of information. Not ultimately. It's about the order of a kind of knowing that is relational and participatory. It's certainly not less than knowing. It's not subcognitive. It's not superstition. But it's way more. We're being brought into the sphere of Jesus Christ's knowing of the Father. We're participating. We're being gathered up in him and carried forth in mission. Does that make sense? Getting that nuance is, is part of whether or not theology is going to sing as it ought. That's what we're doing. It is the sanctification and the transformation and the renewal of our minds in the mind of Christ. Think about that. That's a, I think I'm, we say some bold things in the church, don't we? We say really bold things. Can anyone know the mind of God? Jesus Christ, the incarnate Lord, comes to us when he assumes our humanity, does he assume a whole humanity? Or does he assume a humanity with a big hole where the mind would be? Does he assume a human mind? Why? To sanctify it unto God. To bring it into the closest proximity to the living God. So that in Jesus, first and foremost in Jesus Christ, humans can know God. 
with this one who is truly human. Jesus Christ is mediating to us, humanly mediating knowledge of God. What is he doing? He's sanctifying our minds. He's transforming our minds. He's renewing our minds in the mind of Jesus Christ. Scripture talks a lot about that, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Paul talks in Colossians, um, we have the mind of Christ, right? In the, in the domain of the spirit, um, of the spirit's ministry, which binds us to Christ, we have the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know the father um, to the extent as the son, right? We'd never say that. He always remains infinitely other, as Kierkegaard would say. He's always that. But not infinitely other that's infinitely removed from us. The one who's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. So that we can actually say true things about God. Right at, by the way, right in, right in the face of the tumult of the world, right, in, right as we breathe and struggle for the last breaths in this life, we can say true things about God. We can take them right there, right? Right before caskets as you're proclaiming the love and goodness of God in front of a casket, which is part of ministry, right? If you can't do it there, where? We have been given to know God in Jesus Christ. Theology is the gift, we might say, of participating through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father, in the Son who is the God Word, the Theos Logos, and us who are doing Christian theology we are participating through the Spirit and the Son's communion of the Father such that our minds are renewed and we are growing up, like Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next progressively into conformity to that one who is the image of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I can stop there. You guys, I'm, I'm wholly interruptible. I actually love it. You won't throw me off at all. You won't. I love it. I welcome it. Comments, questions, anything you want to say? Okay, I press in. I'm on point B there, page three. Theology is, therefore, given what we've been saying, pressing in more. Theology is the obedience of our minds to the mystery of Jesus Christ. The obedience of our minds. What do you need to make progress in theology, especially Christian theology for the service of the church? What do you need? The obedience of your mind to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the great and ultimate theologian, the substance of theology, the chief worshiper, the image of God, the obedience of our minds to the mystery of Christ. Now, Scripture uses mystery not like Sherlock Holmes uses mystery. Um, or not about, you know, Scripture doesn't mean by mystery, you know, some fathomless abyss that we just are silent before because we can't even begin to make sense or say anything really constructively about it. That's not the way Scripture means mystery. Scripture means that one who in the progress of of the unfolding of God's revelation has not, been, has not yet been known or fully known and is being made known, right? The mystery of Jesus Christ, that one who we can say true things about because he renews our mind, gives us words and the power of the Spirit to do just that. But him who always remains 
Lord, right? Incomprehensible in the sense that we can never domesticate him. We can never tame him, right? Like Tumnus says, he's not a tame lion. We wrestle with that in our hearts, don't we? We say, we say seemingly pious things like, I don't know about theology. It kind of, does it put God in a box? Well, no, it doesn't. Not, not Christian theology, but by the way, check your heart. We, we, we often struggle with trying to put God in a box, don't we? And to the extent we think we do, we're really disappointed because that God is inevitably, by definition, an idol. Any God you can put in a box is an idol. This is not a tame lion we're talking about, right? It's not, it's not that. He's not that, but he's one who gives himself to be known, never to be domesticated, never to be conscripted to our own agendas, the world's, the church's, anyone else's. He gives himself to be known insofar as, and, and assuming, right, this is part of our theological call, that we undertake through the obedience of our minds to the mystery of Jesus Christ, which is just to say this, our Lord is known in faith and discipleship, or he's not known at all. You can't sit back at a distance from him. You can't try to, like moderns tend to do, deconstruct him and endlessly deliberate about him. You have to follow him. He's only known in the following, right? If you want to know if what I say is of my father, Jesus tells the Pharisees, follow me. But if you think you can, you know, tag along at distance, deconstruct me, you, you can never know me. You just become more and more cynical. Right? You never know me. Theology is the obedience of our minds to the mystery of Jesus Christ, who is the founder and perfecter, Hebrews says, book of Hebrews, of our faith. Our faith is founded in him. It's brought to its fullness in him. Alpha and omega. In other words, if he's going to be omega, he's got to be alpha. If he's going to be the perfecter of your faith, he's got to be the founder of your faith. And all along the way, from first to last, our minds being conformed to him, being conformed to him as we, as we offer ourselves living sacrifices in the theological task, right? Learning Jesus Christ. That being the case, kind of time we got here. We go to 1030. Okay. That being the case, Christian theology is always, as the ancients would say, um, so wisely, faith-seeking understanding. What are we doing in this? We're people of faith, in faith, seeking understanding. We're not people with our self-styled rationalistic project hoping to conclude somehow at faith. We're people in Jesus Christ who is the author of our faith, seeking to press in further up and further in to know him by faith, the same way we came to know him in the beginning, and in faith, to move into greater and greater dimensions of understanding and and maturity and discipleship. We're doing that. All that to say, Christian theology has a big, wonderful, robust, unfeigned apprehension for rationality. Jesus Christ is the logic of God, the most reasonable, rational, rightly understood, logical thing you could ever do is give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Take that yoke, learn from him. It's easy, it's light, magnificent, and that's where life is. The mind, that scripture says needs to be renewed, is is an important element, aspect of the image of God. 
right? To, to diminish it, to think less of it, is to think less about the imago, right? To, to, um, to um, what would we say? Diminish, right? What it means, the fullness of what it means um, to be image of God. We care a lot about what's going on in our minds. At the same time, because Christian theology is faith-seeking understanding, we reject, and I mean heartily, and with real clear eyes, right off the get, we reject rationalism. Affirm rationality, reject rationalism. What's the difference? If rationality is um, uh, the, the joyous, ready acknowledgement um, that Jesus Christ teaching us to love him with our whole minds, right? We set ourselves to that task. It means a lot. Rationality or rationalism, rationalism means something like um, a misguided apprehension that you can think your way to ultimate reality. Right off the bat, Christian theology says no to that. I mean, no triple exclamation point, no way. Why? First of all, because insofar as you ever say something like that, as you start to move down that path, what you're actually saying is, are you sure there's only one mediator between God and man? And it's Christ Jesus? Well, what about, what about my, uh, my gray matter? Isn't that too a mediator? No, it's not. It's not. Um, with the project of the Enlightenment, which was a movement of rationalism, the first thing that the Enlightenment did was re-imaged who Jesus Christ was. Is he the Theos Logos, the God word, right? The, the with us God, Emmanuel God with us? No, he's the paragon of human virtue that underwrites uh, a, a universal moral project. What then is the goal of Christianity? To be moral. It's actually not, by the way. To be holy as I am holy is categorically different than to be moral. And by the way, you can be moral in that sense, in, in, the, in the sheer will of your fallen humanity. It's of a different order than holiness is. Christian theology affirms, affirms rationality, rejects rationalism because rationalism in assuming that our minds can be mediators between God and man does unholy violence to the mediator who is the only mediator between God and man. Does that make sense? That's what we're getting at. Now, another thing we could say there um, when we're talking about faith-seeking understanding, moderns, where we live, we tend, to, we tend to think something like this. Gosh, you know, what I know, I usually, you know, I know by my own wiles, by my learning and studying and reading and so on and so forth. Um, and if it ever is that I come to the end of my knowing, then I just start to have faith. So faith starts where knowing ends. And faith isn't, isn't really relative and grounded in knowing. Not the way scripture talks. Not at all the way scripture talks. What is faith? Faith is knowing. That's where real knowing, the knowing of God and knowing all things relative to God, right? Knowing, seeing Jesus Christ in all things and all things in Jesus Christ, it starts in faith and it never seeks to grow up past faith. 
faith isn't, faith isn't, you know, baby stuff, right, that you grow up out of. Um, we come to know the Lord by faith, and we continue to grow in faith because, biblically speaking, faith isn't the secession of knowledge. It's not contrary to knowledge. It's the highest form of knowledge. We know in faith. We know in faith. Does that make sense? So like Augustine would say, you know, what's wonderful about Christian theology is, what's wonderful about the gospel, the things of God, is um, a two-year-old, right? In the power of the spirit, a two-year-old can have apprehension of, and pretty stunningly good, actually, apprehension of God. But you're never going to grow up in such a way that you touch bottom. Let's say if you wade out into the stream, which is the knowledge of God or theological formation, you're never going to get to the point where you're touching ground and you gain competence in the things of God. It's not even the point. It's not the goal. You keep going further up and further in. And what does does C.S. Lewis say with Lucy? Or she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Of course I'm bigger. You're bigger. The bigger you get, the bigger I get. What happens in theological formation? The bigger you get in that sense, what you learn to perceive rightly is the bigger God is. If, if anywhere along the way in your theological formation, you think you're getting bigger and consequently God's getting smaller, something's rotten. Get at that right away. There's some canker, there's some cancer going on there. We're doing faith-seeking understanding, and it's joyous, right? We learn, we learn to sing as we say, goodness gracious, we're given, we're given to know this one who makes us gasp, right? And the more we know, the more we gasp, and we're just getting started because this is going to be true in eternity. As God opens up the immensity of his life to us, we're never going to be bored. <laughs> Saw that before. This one's getting old. None of that, right? The God who we meet in Jesus Christ never contradicts himself, but continues to open up himself, and there's no bottom. When we're doing Christian theology, I'm going to point C here, we want to remember right up front, and this is, by the way, this is the best place to do Christian theology, right in the life of the church. All the great theologians have come from the church to serve the church. Theology has since, for about 20 different reasons, um, tended to come outside of the church into the academy from the pulpit to the lectern. And the change of context um, has changed content a whole lot and intent a whole lot. It doesn't mean that the academy can't serve the church. Uh, It doesn't mean that. But it means that's not the native natural context for theology. There's always something unnatural going on there. The church is a creature of the triune God of the gospel. I love the word creature. My writing buddy, Marcus Johnson, always says, people think of snakes and worms when you say creature. I love the word. I revel in my creatureliness. We're creatures, right? We have a creator. We have a creator. The church is a creature of the triune God of the gospel, and he has made the church, just like he's made all things, out of dialogue, for dialogue. God is the one who lives and speaks and acts and acts, right? If you read the Old Testament, oh man, you'll see that all. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the living, speaking God. He's not mute, right? He's not inert. And he's different there. By the way, 
to get back to that question about philosophers, one of, one of a great philosopher in the history of the church, Blaise Pascal, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of the philosopher, says, says a philosopher, right? Not because he doesn't like philosophy, not the God who is an idea, not the God who is a mental construct that we're trying to master, the God who lives and speaks and acts. Fire, heat, warmth, right? God makes out of dialogue and he creates for dialogue. So think about the creation of the world. Let us make. It's dialogical. For, to what end? So that we make a people who reflect us, the image of God. A people responsive to us, right? Responsible, real agency there. A people with all that, it, all that it, they need to love back, right? That, that, type of, that type of thing. Now, how does that play for the church? Jesus Christ calls forth in the gospel, right, a people to respond to the gospel. We respond in song, praise, mission, prayer, right? Theologically, we respond theologically there. Christian theology is an answer to an address. It's an answer to an address. It's an answer to revelation. It's never, it's never self-styled and it never begins with us. The church's response to the self-revelation of God and Jesus Christ and the language of theology then is the language of faith and worship, the language of scripture, the language of the kingdom, the language of mission, right? Those are the words to this hymn we're singing. Uttered by the church in response to her being sought and seized and sanctified by the incarnate word. So that what we want to get here, the takeaway for what I'm talking about here is when we start to think about what are we doing and why are we doing it? The theology as a response is always, if I can say it this way, secondhand words. The technical, you know, $20 theological term is post-legomena. Our words are in response to that first word in theology, prolegomena, right? And who has the first word? The word. Our theology isn't us trying to speak prior to God's revelation, speak over God's revelation, um, speak around God's revelation. Ours is having heard and being formed in the word to reciprocate. Does that make sense? Our theology is post-legomena in this way. Let me say this last thing, and then I'll stop, and I want to, I want to, anything you want to say to me, I want to hear. Let me make this last point. Let me unpack it a little bit, because this is some, some of the ways that people stumble or they're kind of off-put, intimidated by theology. It, it deals with these types of things. I want to get them straight right off the bat. Christian theology is necessarily propositional, personal. You never want to rip those apart. You never want to put one against the other, both at the same time. What I mean by propositional is we deal in statement, right? We deal in, for lack of a better term, we'll say fact, right? We deal in confession. When we, when we confess the Nicene Creed, right, we're, we're making truth statements, right? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, so on and so forth. We're wanting to say and called to say true things about God, propositions. That's wonderful. Now, we don't merely traffic in propositions when we're doing theology, right? The goal of theology is 
master a bunch of propositions about God so that we can pretend that these have some kind of independent existence apart from God and, su and, and supply the lack of the presence of God. Does that make sense? To get, to get theological skill in the propositional dimension of theology doesn't even require real knowledge of God. Doesn't even require that. Really important nonetheless, really important nonetheless. What we, what we want is propositional realities and to grow in skill and propositional realities before the face of God, always relating to the person, the tri-personal reality of the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. Personal, propositional. If we just have the propositional, what will what'll happen is we'll get real dry, we'll get real arid, right? We'll, we'll all be bored, um, but we might not say it. And what, what, what advancement looks like is real close to what pretense looks like. We don't want that. If on the other hand, we say, that's for eggheads, right? Uh, and it's erudite and it's intimidating and who needs that? We just love Jesus. You're coming real close to a Jesus of a wax nose. That's, that's just a uh, divinization of cultural imaging, casting your religious fantasy upon you know, some cipher and then calling it the Lord. Jesus Christ, personal relationship with Jesus Christ has ideational reality and specificity. He is, he is the one come to us is the fullness of prophetic apostolic witness, right? We want to say true things. There's a, there's a stewardship of our mind and of our intellects and all of this. All the while, though, what we're doing is we're seeking a theology that happens by way of experience. Like Luther would say, one doesn't become a theologian by reading and memorizing alone. Not at all, alone. He said one becomes a theologian by living and dying and repenting and being resurrected to new life. Experience, he says, makes the theologian. We're talking about lived realities, right? We're not, we're not trying to memorize um, propositional statements. All the while, you think I'm gonna read it because I like the way I wrote it. I'm gonna read it and then I'll unpack it a little bit. Christian theology is about employing truth to confess the truth to revel in the truth, to know the truth, employing words to commend the word. And so we employ propositions to describe and enshrine Jesus Christ. Think about the propositional dimension of, of Christian theology as a setting on a wedding ring. The goal isn't to be preoccupied with the setting. What the setting does is it exalts the gem so that you can behold it and just be captivated by it. The propositional content of Christian theology undergirds the one to whom Christian theology speaks, the one to whom Christian theology sings. Biblical, uh, where was I? I want to keep going that, with that. To enshrine Jesus Christ, who is always and ever both living person and living word. Why does theology have propositional content? Because Jesus Christ is the word. But he's not the static word. He's the dynamic living word. Always has to be both, never one or the other, either one or the other in isolation. One in, in isolation or in contradiction to the other, the theology will go bad on you. 
Biblical propositions that constitute the stuff of Christian theology are the God-given, spirit-vivified vehicle in which and through which Jesus Christ, the sum and substance of our theology, the ultimate theologian, the chief worshiper, the choir master, gives himself to us, forges himself in us, so that this one who is the living truth, truth is claiming and mastering us, not mastering us to enslave us, but to set us free. The mass, his burden's light, right? He sets us free. The living truth claims and masters us precisely as we continue to immerse ourselves in the prophetic apostolic witness and the witness of the church by which he enhances our knowledge of him, our boldness in him, our confidence in him. He intensifies our affections for him. The bigger he gets, right? He quickens our trust in him. He enlivens our obedience to him. As we continue to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and we taste and see, we say, more, right? He creates a palate for us, makes us hungry, makes us thirsty, satisfies us, doesn't satiate us, satisfies us so that we say, I want more of that. And all the while, right, increased affections. Uh, increased knowledge, increased desire and capacity to trust and obey. And so you become, a, you become a skilled theologian, and all the while what you say is, trust and obey, right? That's how you're happy in Jesus. I can, I can think about it and do it better as I grow more mature, but as I grow more mature, you know what I'm actually doing? I'm growing into childlikeness. I'm being purged of all my childishness. I'm growing in childlikeness. And by the way, who by nature is the supreme child of God? Who is the measure and the standard um, that we're to grow up into? Jesus Christ. And when we do, we learn how to cry, Abba, Father, just like him, because he is the child of the Father. We grow up into, we mature into childlikeness, which is a movement away from childishness. And by the way, childlikeness doesn't mean adulthood. There's lots of childish adults, right? It's, you, you, don't get to, you don't mature by the mere passage of time. You mature into childlikeness. Do you guys want to say anything there? Yes. Oh, you need it. So I uh, wrote out my question here. Um, so from what you've been saying, it sounds to me like theology is necessarily a human project. So human words about God. Mm -hmm. Therefore, our culture necessarily shapes our language about God and even our priorities in theology, including which questions we ask of the Bible. This seems to me inevitable. Uh, so my question is this. If this is true, how can we be sure that we're talking about God and not just talking about ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question. Matthew, great question. The theology is a human project, right? As soon as we say... Um, Jesus Christ is our God word, our theos logos, our theology, the sum and substance, and the ultimate theologian. Guess what else he is? Fully human. He's all those things as he's fully human. If Jesus Christ is our chief theologian, our ultimate theologian, and the church, obviously, fully human, right? What's happening? Theology, this learning to speak and learning to sing is a wholly human project. It's a holy human project that's spirit-wrought and conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ and normed, right, 
but a norm of scripture. It's normed that way, it's sourced there and, and it keeps going back there. All the while, what Matthew said is, um, Jesus, when, when Jesus seizes us for his own, he calls us into the world, not to be of the world, but to be for the world, right? Really important. So it's a, it's a, it's a project that's fully human for the life of the world. And as we seek to speak to the world, we always live in that. It's an eschatological tension, actually, is what it is. It's an eschatological tension. We're an eschatological people, the new humanity, learning how to speak, learning how to mission. We want to speak to the world, but we never want the world to be for us the datum point or the controlling principle of our knowledge of God. The world never can be that for us. Don't be assimilated to the world. The response to that is don't withdraw and retreat from the world. Don't form a ghetto. Don't despise the world. This is the way scripture talks, right? God so loves the world. And just as the father loves the world and sent the son into the world to love the world, right to Golgotha, so the son sends us into the world to love the world as God loves the world on God's terms. But don't you dare think that you can love the world on its own terms, which is contrary to the purposes of the truth of the reality of the God who is loved. You can't do that. That's why John would say in, uh, what is it, 1 John 2, we don't love the world this way, right? For, for to love the world this way isn't from the Father. Because the, the way, the, way the, the, the cachet, the values, the allegiances, the ideologies of the world, they traffic in pride of life, right? Desires of the flesh. You can't love the world that way. So we're always seeking to as a mission of love, to love the world on God's terms, God's mission. Part of the way we love the world is we, we spend a lot of time thinking about the way in which the world speaks, the values in which the world speaks, right? And then we learn how to situate and bring to bear the good news of the gospel. Does that make sense? So let's see what kind of time we have. Okay, we got 15 minutes. Maybe we can steal two or three more. Um, two of the biggest issues, let's say, just for conversation's sake, two of the biggest issues right now in our culture are, well, I'll give you three. Technology, sex, um, ethnicity, or race, racial issues, right? These are big. Does the church want to speak to those? Yes, for sure. Let's take sex right off the top. It's low-hanging fruit, but man, is it important. Do you think that the gospel came into um, the Greco-Roman world in the first century and people said, oh, of course, a, a, a biblical, the good news of sexuality normed by Jesus Christ. Of course, we already knew that and we love it. Or do you think it was disruptive? It was really disruptive. It's always been. It's always been. It doesn't traffic in the world the way John talks about the world in 1 John 2. It doesn't traffic in the world that way. This is true of us, too. Do we want to learn how to speak so that the proclamation of the gospel is, is purposed to the world as good news, really good news, right? We do. Therefore, do we need to spend a lot of time thinking about the way in which the world thinks about sex? Yes. You, you, want, to be, you want to be conversant in ideology, language, all those things. You want to be pretty conversant in them so that you can proclaim the good news. Right? Um, can I stop there? Is that enough? 
because I, I could riff on that for a long time, but you get the point, right? That's what we're doing. Um, we're sitting in the tension. It's not a balance, by the way. It's a tension. It's an eschatological tension. We're sitting in the eschatological tension of being in and for the world and sent into the world for that purpose, but not being of the world, not being rooted in, in the world's agendas and ideations, not doing that. Watch the political cycle real closely because you're, you're going to see it like crazy. Yeah. So maybe uh, one way of kind of summarizing what you're saying so far is that it's okay that theology is a human project all the way down, but that it's not necessarily human all the way up. Oh, yeah. You, there's, there's a good way to say that. That's a good way to put it. It's thoroughly human. Let's say it's fully human, right? We're using the language of the incarnation there. It's fully human. Um, it's truly human. It's also because we're on the way. Um, we're not doing this theologia biatorum, right? We're, we're not doing the theology of the great cloud of witnesses. We're on the way. We're growing. We're learning. But that being said, that tension is we can say true things about God, right? True things. We're not merely provisional, and we're not saying them hemming and hawing. We can speak a word of life and a word of truth, right, in the church, in the world. But all the while, we're also growing on the way, aren't we? We're growing on the way from one degree of glory to the next. Theology is discipleship. We're growing up that way. So yes, um, theology didn't fall down from heaven untainted and untouched by human hands. It's, it's, a, it's a human project, for sure. Let's spend a couple minutes. We won't get through all of this, but I want to talk about the purposes, the importance of theology in the life of the church. Christian theology is an answer to an address, as we've said. The church's response to the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So then what does, it, what, what does theology do? Dawkins says it doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. Well, what does it do? Theology has a descriptive purpose. A descriptive purpose. Really, really important. What theology does uh, is it helps us have true understanding of God, ourselves, and the world that only theology can give us. Only theology can ultimately give us that. Theology tells us first and foremost who we are by telling us whose we are. Self-knowledge is always relative to the one who's, who made us and whose image we bear. If it's not rooted there, it's a false knowledge of the self. Does that make sense? Always that's the case. As I think I said a little while ago, God's self-knowing grounds God's self-revelation. God's self-revelation grounds not only our knowledge of God, but our knowledge of ourselves. God does that wonderful, wonderful ministry to us, that foot-washing ministry of taking a deformed self, taking it to Golgotha, raising us from the dead, and giving us back to ourselves in this way, human, truly, you know, authenticating our humanity and our personhood to teach us who we are relative to himself. He opens up our, our kind of contrived, small, enclosed sense of the self and opens the circumference of it so that we get a knowledge of self in the, in the company of the other. Theology interprets the human condition and the human experience. Now, some of the some of the 
biggest, most influential people in the West in the last couple centuries, few centuries, Darwin, Marx, Freud. These are brilliant people with lots of perceptions, some of them profound, about the human predicament, right? The human predicament. What none of them can do, cannot do, is get at the human condition because it's rooted in being made by God for God. Does that make sense? That's the gift of theology that the, that the church is called to steward. So we too can think well about the human predicament, but think about it rooted in the human condition, which, which no matter how perceptive it is, no matter how brilliant it is, mere, mere creaturely human observations on the world, not informed by and not normed by the Lord Jesus Christ, can never get at human meaning. Can never do that. That's good for that. You guys get it. Let's talk a little bit about the pastoral meaning and the pastoral purpose of theology. Theology maintains the integrity and vitality of the church's worship. If you're a, if you're a student of church history, this is what you'll find. Whenever the church cares a lot about worship, whenever the church cares a lot about mission, the church always cares about theology. You can bet on it. Whenever the church gets soft, afraid, ingrown, lazy, um, all over the place in terms of her worship, what you're always going to find, and it's no coincidence, is that is, is a bit of theological indifference or confusion. They, they grow up and they stand or they fall together because theology is about worship. It's about mission. Theology preserves the identity and the Catholicity of the Christian faith. That's a service that we want to render, right, um, as disciples of our Lord, to preserve the identity and the Catholicity of the faith so that the church, so that, so that the church can maintain and, and continue to manifest better that we are one, holy, Catholic, apostolic, so that we can be, like our Lord says, like our Lord prays in John 17, that, that they may be one and made whole, complete, perfect, is the word he uses in English in our, in our translation, perfect in oneness, so that the world will know that the Father loves the Son and sent the Son. We maintain the church's identity. In other words, we make sure that we know, we keep the first things first, right? Keep first things first that we don't go off on rabbit trails and hobby horses, and that we're not constantly buffeted um, by the things of the world that, that um, tempt us to leave off of the substance of the gospel. Does that make sense? Doing that all the time. And let me say this, we could say so much more, but you guys, you guys have these. Theology ensures that Christian language, right, we're, we're words about the word, that Christian language, that Christian confession retains its Christian content so that Christian language, the stuff of our confession, continues to orientate us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we had tons and tons of time, I'd say think about some of the most basic language of the Christian confession and how we're tempted um, to use it lazily, let's say, or... or um, carelessly, and we don't steward it well so that, it, so that it's actually words of life. K 
can we also oh subtly reduce that rich, wonderful reality of Christian hope to optimism? Faith to, you know, um, contentless superstition. Like you'll see, you know, Christmas is coming soon enough and we're gonna see people saying, believe in what? The magic of the season, whatever that means, right? Does that make sense? Faith, not, not contentless superstition, but that vehicle by which God is known, right? Um, the language of sin, dare we use it, right? Sin is not of the order of mistake. If you need, a, if you need an eraser or a mop to address something, it's probably a mistake. Sin can be rooted in, man, I just didn't know better. It's a form of ignorance for sure. But you guys get the point, sin something different. That which cannot be justified by us, but can only be confessed, right? And it's the context by which we know the grace of the Lord Jesus. So on and so forth. You guys get to keep Christian language, Christian, so that we don't start to speak the language of the world in a weird dialect, so that we don't do Christianese. Does that make sense? Christianese isn't to use the language of the kingdom. Use the language of the kingdom. Make sure it's actually suffused with the content of the kingdom or else it becomes Christianese. What we do is, in <clears throat> using a malformed voice, we just echo back to the world what it already knows. Think about the way we sometimes talk about God is love to the world and the world yawns. Because what we, if we're not careful, what we mean is God is a love-starved little puppy um, that is anxious to affirm us um, in every conceivable way. Um, and his love is actually ingratiating and kind of flaccid, right? It doesn't have holy teeth to it, substance to it, right? It's not holy love. And so it's not gripping and, and um, it doesn't grab hold of us and bring us to life. It's something else. And so the world yawns and the, and the church often says like, gosh, the world doesn't care about the love of God. Oh, yes, it will. Proclaim the love of God, the strong, strong love of God. Theological language, right? Yeah, Well. Thanks for this teaching, uh, yeah. Clark. Um, thinking about our diocese vision and mission for a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit, thinking about different revivals that have happened throughout church history, thinking about, you know, uh, even someone like Charles Finney, where in some ways a reaction to over-intellectualism, mm -hmm. but lacking, you know, incredible uh, emotion and, uh, you know, justice and goodness that came out of those revivals, but not well theologically informed. Um, and yet reacting in some ways to uh, what was perceived in the church as maybe a knowledge of sin, but no compunction or feeling of penitence or yeah, yeah. a knowledge of salvation um, without any actual emotional awareness mm -hmm. or love for God and what God's done, where that mm -hmm. truth is touching us aesthetically on the emotional level too. How do we hold these things in tension and how do we cultivate, looking at what you said about how it intensifies, theology intensifies our affections for Christ. How do we cultivate our affections in a way that's uh, not giving way to emotionalism? Yeah, gosh, that's a good question, Well, and a big one. Right off the top, let's say this. Good, anthro good anthropology, right, is 
we can make distinctions about what we might call different faculties, different aspects of, of the human person, um, the intellect, the emotion. Um, modernity has tended to, to really part those out, right? And so we say things like, you know, um, Knowledge of God doesn't have anything to do with your emotion. Or there's always, a, you know, there's not always, but often a perceived conflict between the heart and the head. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, to which we could add, right? With all your imagination, um, so on and so forth. What's going on with us? The, one of the reasons that the Lord assumed the whole of our humanity is to redeem the whole of our humanity and bring it up into this mission of God and Jesus Christ. And so, um, right off the bat, well, we want to we want to couch theology. That's why theology ought to be couched in worship, couched in service, right? Humility, couched in praise, couched in repentance, so that we're bringing the whole of our of ourselves um, before that life-giving presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the things. Right, when, we, um, when we take theology out of the context of the church and put it in the academy, the academy can feed, and in some really awesome ways, feed, feed our minds without feeding our hearts. And, we're, and we're, we're dry and arid and starved to death right there. So you want to always keep theology and worship together. Someone, you know, I teach a class on John Calvin uh, at Moody. And um, one of the things that Calvin says right off the bat and so many in the church Catholic do. Without piety, there's no true knowledge of God, right? And he means as a way of life. Because where God is known, God is loved. And where God is loved, there's a pouring forth of the heart. Now that looks different for all kinds of different people. We've, we've got different kind of emotional makeups. But piety is basic to knowledge of God. They're basic to knowledge of God. And so um, we, want to, we want to be cultivating that. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons that the epicenter and always, always will be the native place for theology is the church, the native context. Now, can I say something about Finney and people like that? We tend to be pragmatists, right? And so we'd often say, well, was there any fruit that came out of that? Um, there's kind of a dismissing of theology for decent reasons, right? And, we tend to be like Luther says, a drunken peasants who keep falling off one side of the, 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 the mule just to try to get up and we fall off the other one. And so there's these wild pendulum swings. And the answer to, you know, over intellectualizing the faith is to jettison that dimension altogether. And we might say being pragmatist, well, was there fruit? And if there's fruit, if there's fruit, that somehow justifies it. Praise God for the fruit, right? Um, God knows how to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Praise be to God. <laughs> right? But it doesn't, justify, um, it doesn't justify leaving off that which is precious and blessed. And so, you know, a revival of word and sacrament and the, the presence and the power of the spirit. That's a, that's, a whole, that's a holism right there that brings together imagination and emotion and worship and intellect and all of these things. Yeah. I was also thinking about this question when you were going over uh, your comments on um, trying to keep together the propositional and personal uh, natures of theology. Um, and I find, maybe other people will find this helpful, I find it helpful to remember um, kind of what the character of God is like in holding mm -hmm. different um, 
distinctions together within his own nature. I mean, even with the persons, they're, they're mutually indwelling. They're, they're perichoretic. They, they inform one another. They, there's this, um, this unity uh, among mm-hmm. the persons. And the same with the, the characteristics of God and their simplicity, that they, um, they're distinguishable. You can, you can keep them distinct in your mind, that there's the love of God and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. Yeah. Um, but they don't exist as separate categories like the West likes to parse them out as a consequence of... Division without distinction, or <laughs> yeah. distinction without division, right? That phrase mm-hmm. will serve you so well in theology yeah. in so many ways. Distinction without division. Maybe we can blame the Greeks for like putting things in different boxes, thanks dualism. Uh, but I find it helpful to kind of keep that perichoresis idea in mm-hmm. mind when trying to think about how to do theology, that they all sort of... Uh, the personal, the emotional, the relational, um, should sort of indwell, inform um, the intellectual, and vice versa. That the mm-hmm. intellectual informs and mm-hmm. indwells, and they they mutually work together in, in sort of a unity, yeah. and kind of imitating the character of God in that way. Let's hold that wonderful comment. Let's hold. Will's question, your comment. Let's hold that together. And when we start to talk about what it means to be human in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's bring that to. What are, what are human emotions, right? And what are redeemed human emotions? And what are fallen human emotions, right? And what is God doing in redemption? Is he, is he stoicizing us and reducing the sphere of our human emotions? Or is he sanctifying emotions? What do we do with emotions that we often deem bad? Anger, right? Is anger a bad emotion? Does it, is there anything in God that it echoes? Right. And what would it look like to express that emotion sinfully or in a holy way? Right. So we're, we're going to get at that for sure. For sure. Let me say a couple quick things because I think we're probably even over time. Let me say this. You have your notes. We can, we'll keep going back to this. Theology has a missiological purpose. It's so precious and it's so important. A missiological purpose. The church's mission to the world requires... Um, requires the church to cherish theology. The mission itself is theological as the church's office is a theological office. Theology ensures or works to that end that the church's witness to the world isn't reduced to, we might say, colonizing, right? Mission isn't, isn't to, we're, not, we're not called to colonize the world. It'll, it'll, it'll move away from that And it'll also help us not reduce mission to just a a form of cross-cultural dialogue. You'll see that in a lot of theological seminaries and colleges, or even they'll rename missions departments, you know, cross-cultural communication and things like that. That's because A, they're ashamed of missions at one level. But B, they, they reduce mission to just humanitarian effort or something close to it. Now, humanitarian effort's awesome, right? You worship the Lord in word and deed. But but the church isn't habitat for humanity. We can partner with Habitat for Humanity, but we have a mission that is utterly unique that isn't given to Habitat for Humanity. It's a theological mission. Does that make sense? It's not be warm and be full, and let's bring, let's bring theology to you um, that, that, that has no hands to it. It's not that, but neither is it. You know, is, <laughs> we, we so wrongly attribute this to Francis of Assisi like he was some kind of nature mystic or something instead of just a robust evangelist. Preach the gospel at all times, and if you absolutely have to, if you're just in a corner, use words. Oh, dear. No way, right? Word and deed. Theology keeps the church's mission 
on mission and the church on message. I'll just say that for now. Let me say this. We'll be done with this session. We've got a sociological purpose here. Just as the truth unites, the truth distinguishes, right? The truth discerns, the truth we can't even say in this sense divides, right? I come to make you one, Father, let them be one. Don't think that I came to bring peace, but a sword. Both of those are true, right? Both of those are true. Theology um, teaches the church what it means to be the church, how we're distinguished from the world, where we're distinguished from the world, so that we can be of service to the world. If we don't know as the church how, how and why we're distinguished from the world, we haven't stewarded the keys of the kingdom, like Jesus says, right? We haven't done that. We haven't, we haven't stewarded that apostolic ministry. And so, it's, so the church doesn't understand what it means to be church. And the world is robbed to the extent that that's the case of the good news of the gospel, right? Theology does all of those things. We could say lots more, and we will, but we're over. So we'll stop there, take a break, and we're going we're gonna to start, um, well, you'll see. We're going to start with, with uh, incarnation and the knowledge of God. Bless you guys. See you in a couple minutes.